we want to get our bearings on five theological considerations this morning. We're looking at Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11. So if you'll turn there and read along with me, please. Starting in verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So I want to kind of get our first theological bearing on a review of what justification is. God in the gospel of Jesus forgives repentant sinners and welcomes such forgiven, cleansed, and changed sinners back into the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul had been making the point in Romans 1.16 that the gospel, this divinely revealed justification he's been talking about, is the power of God to salvation, he says, for everyone. Not every single existing everyone, but a qualified everyone, everyone who believes whether they are Jew or Gentile. Paul repeats this idea of everyone who believes often in the book of Romans. For example, he says in Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. Romans 4.5 says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And so any person who believes this divinely revealed gospel receives the divine justification on the basis of their faith alone. This justification is the divine act whereby God, in a sense, throws down the gavel in the courtroom of justice and declares or counts or reckons or imputes to sinners who now have faith, to be sinners who are now righteous. You'll notice how I said that. The righteousness we have in justification is God's righteousness. It's a divine righteousness. It's an alien, extrinsic righteousness that God alone possesses. It's a righteousness that is outside of us. It's not part of our essential nature, it's part of God's nature. Being sinful is part of our nature. And I said he declares us to be sinners who are now righteous because he doesn't infuse us with righteousness. We don't actually become more righteous in this declared justification. 
and neither do we cease being sinners. Never, not even in the complete forgiveness of sin, are we really righteous like the righteousness of Christ. God imputes his righteousness to our account. He assigns righteousness to us. He credits our account with his own righteousness. And God graciously declares us not guilty of our sinfulness when we believe, because God pronounced Christ guilty on the cross on our behalf. And in that pronouncement of guilt, Christ became our substitute. John MacArthur put it this way. Though Jesus never committed a sin, God treated him as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe and punished him for them all, though in reality he had never committed one sin. Christ took the penalty for all the sins of those who believe, and then God crushed out the life of Jesus with his wrath. In a very real sense, Christ dying on the cross then is a demonstration of God's wrath against sinners, and at the same time a demonstration of his love for sinners. Christ didn't deserve it, but God reckoned the believer's sin to him. He put sin onto Christ's account so he could reckon the righteousness of Christ to our account, though we didn't deserve it. The other side of substitution and imputation, then, is this. That at the same time God was treating Jesus as if he had committed all of your sins, he's now treating you as if you've never done anything but the righteous deeds of Jesus himself. This is why it's necessary to speak in terms of imputing and accounting when we talk about justification. Because Jesus in reality didn't commit all your sins, though they were imputed to him. And you did not do the righteous deeds of Jesus, though they are imputed to you. Now, Paul has been making the argument from the beginning of the book of Romans that God is infinitely holy, just, and righteous. And he is also, in a sense, infinitely narrow-minded. He will not compromise with evil and sin at all. And because he won't compromise with evil and sin, God came up with the one solution that would take care of his justice and his love and his wrath, which is the theme of the book of Romans. As the Reformers said, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It's all and forever always about Jesus. And demonstrating what and why God did what he did here in Romans 5.1, he begins to explain the practical outcome of that justification. He says in the beginning at 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not peace from God or the peace of God, but we now have peace with God. Believers have peace with God. 
And he's going to articulate and prove that point to us in the following verses. And so Paul is setting out to show us that because we are justified, we are in a different relationship with God than we were before. We are not in the relationship we were previously with God. We are now at peace with God. He says, beginning in verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul is simply saying that at the proper time, determined in the counsels of God's wisdom, that divine love was extended to us in the miserable condition we were in. We were weak. We were sick morally, totally incapable of doing good in terms of meriting our own salvation, dead in sin and trespasses. We were in no condition to win either the pity or the sympathy of divine holiness. Just look at the list of grievances God had against us prior to our being justified in Christ. We were estranged from God through sin. We had no hope and were without God in the world. We were alienated, enemies in our mind by wicked works. We were heirs of wrath. We were sons of disobedience. We were subject to the curse of eternal death. We were excluded from all hope of salvation. We were beyond the hope of every eternal blessing of God. We were slaves of Satan, captive under the yoke of sin. We were destined finally for a dreadful destruction and already moving in that direction in unbelief. It's interesting that Paul uses the word still in verses 6 and 8. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And in verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when Christ died for us, we were still weak. We were still ungodly. We were still in misery and sin. We were still the enemies of God. The Greek word for still means something that was formerly true, but now a different state of things exists or has begun to exist. So keep in mind that when Paul says Christ died for the ungodly, he's not saying that Christ died for all those who have ever been ungodly or all those yet unborn who will die in their unbelief and ungodliness. If he meant that Christ died for all those who have ever been ungodly, he would need to use the word still because those who remain ungodly and in unbelief would be unchanged in their relationship to God. Only believers have a changed relationship to God. It is only believers who were still in their sin and ungodliness when Christ died for them, who now have a different relationship to God. Christians are still sinful and ungodly in their nature, but their relationship to God has been changed because they now have the righteousness of God imputed to their account. That's the thing that makes them different. 
Paul repeatedly uses the pronouns we and us in this section to refer to a specific group of ungodly. Those believers who were formerly enemies alienated from God because of their sin no longer are because of their justification. Christ died for those of us who are now Christians while we were still ungodly. Christ died for us while we were still in a state of alienation to him. But most fascinatingly in this passage, this paragraph, Christ died for us because God loved us while we were still enemies deserving of his wrath. I know I need to say that again. Christ died for us because God loved us while we were still enemies deserving of his wrath. I think that's a theological issue we need to get our bearings on. So the second theological bearing we want to try to get this morning is bearing on God's love and wrath. I want to try to understand it more fully. And so Paul kind of puts love and, just, and wrath at just the position in this paragraph. He puts two seemingly contradictory ideas of love and wrath close together, where they have a contrasting effect. The Bible simultaneously affirms God's wrath toward people and his love for them. It does not affirm that God's love and his judicial hatred are necessarily mutually exclusive. God both loves and is wrathful. But God makes distinctions in his love and in his wrath. For example, he loves unbelievers who have not been justified. Listen now. But not to the extent that his wrath will never be poured out on them if they remain in unbelief. I think you could look at it this way. Love only upstages God's wrath for sinners and the ungodly and those who are enemies when they are in Christ. It's always and forever about the relationship people have to Christ. Those who remain in unbelief do not have the love of God to look forward to, as some might suggest from John 3.16. They have the wrath of God to look forward to. Apart from Christ, we have God pouring out his wrath on unbelievers in the world, not God loving the unbelievers in the world. God will, folks, God will always love. God is love. There is no appeasing, no pacifying, no relieving, no removing God's love, except when the demand of wrath is more important. This is why it's so fascinating to talk about what God accomplished on the cross for Christ. Even when God loved his beloved son more than anything he could ever imagine having to love, the wrath of God trumped God's love for Jesus. In order to love the unlovable, the rebellious, the ungodly enemies of God, us, the infinite love of God for his own son had to become less important for God 
so that the full force of his wrath against us would be appeased. God loves Jesus. But even the infinite love he had for Jesus didn't keep him from pouring out his wrath on Christ. And God's love for sinners won't stop him from pouring out his wrath on them if they remain outside of Christ. The unforgiven sinner, the unjustified enemy of God, stands under God's curse while he is in unbelief. Scripture is plain about that. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That is, he exists in a completed state of condemnation while he is in his unbelief. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And that is why historically the church has taught that Christ became the object of divine wrath for believers, not for everyone. It is always and forever true that it is in Christ that God makes the distinction about wrath and love for every single person. Outside of Christ, men are still seen as sinners, ungodly, and enemies of God. Now we come to a, a rather interesting aspect of a theological bearing on who was reconciled. Was God reconciling himself or was he reconciling us? This is an important consideration, I think. The death of Christ was more about God's taking care of his wrath than him taking care of his, of our sinfulness. The Bible teaches that God is angry with the sinner. His holy outrage against the sinner must be assuaged if the sinner is to escape due punishment. That's why there had to be a death on Calvary. When we behold the Savior dying for us at the cross, we should see in his death not first our salvation, but our damnation being born and carried away by him. God's wrath is his personal divine revulsion to evil and his vigorous opposition to it. Apart from Christ's death work, God could only have continued in an unpropitiated state. But see, this is the difficulty with talking about this subject. And I'm not saying it's an easy thing to wrap your mind around by any means. If it's God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, it is God's love which did the propitiating. If it's God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, it is God's love which did the propitiating. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. God did not change from wrath to love or from hatred to grace with the death of Christ since his character is perfect and always unchanging. 
what the propitiation changed was his dealings with those who believe. In Christ's death, God removed his own alienation, not our hostility towards him. During a conference, someone asked R.C. Sproul, Does God love us just the way we are? Does he hate the sin and love the sinner? Are we unconditionally loved? And Sproul had kind of a snide remark. He said, the kingdom of God is not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. He used to end his show, Mr. Rogers, each broadcast with, quote, people can like you just the way you are. And Sproul was saying that that is true of people, but not of God. Because what had made us enemies with God, in 5.10 it says, we being enemies, is not that we were hating God, but rather that God was hating us. The word enemies does not highlight our unholy hatred of God, but rather God's holy hatred of us. And putting those two ideas of love and wrath in the same paragraph is extremely challenging to us, as I'm sure you're probably beginning to experience as it was for me, all week long. <laughs> and that's why we trust Scripture to inform us of how we should think about this. Psalm 11.5, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 5.5, You hate all workers of iniquity. Psalm 7:11 God is a righteous judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Proverbs 15:9 The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. Ezra 8:22 The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. And unlike God's extrinsic righteousness that he imputes to believers, our sin is not extrinsic to us. It's very much a part of who we are. And so a holy God who is dead set against sin is also dead set against sinners until they are in Christ and reconciled to him. For this reason, while we, when we speak of God's love, we should always hold it up alongside and in juxtaposition to his wrath. Because each characteristic, each attribute, distinguishes and clarifies the reality of the other. That's why Christianity is held that Christ on the cross is both the expression of God's love for sinners and the expression of his wrath against sinners. And in order for God's love to win out toward sinners, his wrath toward their sin had to be poured out. He could never love us enough to keep his wrath from being poured out on our sin, except when we are in Christ. But that's how much he loved us, enough to pour out his wrath on sin, so he could love sinners who are in Christ. 
Love is pouring out wrath upon his one beloved son so that he could love sinners in his holiness. Listen. Free from the wrath that must necessarily accompany his holiness in the presence of their sin. So in a real sense, Christ's dying didn't fix our sinfulness. It fixed God's holiness in relationship to our sinfulness. We are still sinners. We are still ungodly. But we are no longer enemies of God when we are in Christ Jesus by faith. And Paul now begins to demonstrate that that is the greatest example possible of God's love for us. And so then we need to get our theological bearings on the proof of God's love for us. He's going to demonstrate and prove that God loves us now. So the degree of our sickness could only inspire disgust in God. It could only attract the wrath of God in His holiness. And it was while we were in this repulsive state of impotence and ungodliness that the greatest proof of God's love for us was given to us. In that, Christ died for us. He died on our behalf in our place. And Paul continues to explain the utterly exceptional character of this love that God has demonstrated to us. In verse 7, for One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he's saying it would certainly be considered admirable for a man to die for another righteous man, though that scarcely ever happens. Yet for a good man, a loving man, a deserving man, some would even dare to die. And this might be an award-winning demonstration of human love, if that were to happen. But what men hardly do, even for those who are most worthy of admiration and love, God has done for that which merited only his indignation and abhorrence. He loved us even when we ourselves do not love what is most excellent in other men. And this establishes beyond question then for Paul the reality of God's sacrificial love for us. His love takes on the character of sacrifice on behalf of those who are altogether unworthy of his love. There was not in us the least movement which would have merited such a love from God in his holiness. And if you struggle with believing anything about the work that Christ did on our behalf, ask yourself this question. How could the human heart ever conceive of such a way to deal with the problem of our sinfulness and God's holiness? How could we ever come up with something like that? What God did was something that someone would do who is standing in desperate need of sinners. Doing the unfathomable. 
to guarantee what is far too absurd to be anything but either insanity or divine heavenly revelation that we could never conceive of. Paul is asking, how else but for Christ could we have known that God loves us? Really, really loves us. And that love with an utterly inconceivable passion that pours out his wrath on his most beloved son. Listen, where God actually conquers his own wrath by the use of his own secret weapon, his own love and the sacrifice of his son. He conquers his own wrath with his love. Take a few minutes to think about that. Paul is saying that if God so loved us while we were yet sinners and enemies, how much more then, being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? In other words, why is there still any doubt that God loves us? Let's get a bearing on the last issue here, getting our theological bearings on our confidence in Christ's work. Paul has been giving the Gentile and the Jewish recipients of this letter enough theology to where any serious reader will have to say, okay, hold it, <laughs> i got to get my theological bearings here, it's a little bit much. They've been justified, they've been declared righteous by faith. They have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. They stand in His grace. They rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, no matter the trials, as Travis talked about last week. They have the Holy Spirit given to them, convincing them of these truths. They are being saved from his wrath. They have received the reconciliation through Christ. And I'm imagining that the newly justified Christian who's trying to get his bearings on this theology... And frankly, much of the Christian church today is still wondering some of these same things. Will this pardon and acceptance I now have with God really hold out against his hatred and wrath toward my sinfulness? Can I be sure, I mean really sure, that no sin I commit in the future or no trespass I fall into will reawaken this divine wrath I've been rescued from? Can I be certain of that? Can this declared righteousness I have received by faith really guard me from returning to being an enemy of God again? Does this justification I have by faith mean I will always have peace with God no matter what? Is there anything I can do or fail to do in the future that will change the status of this justification that I have that has brought about this reconciliation with God? And so in verses 6 to 11, Paul set about to prove and to establish and to exhibit that we will persevere and be preserved in salvation to the final consummation of the day of wrath. For four chapters, Paul has established the evidence that we need. And now with these 
three next verses, he wants to give us confidence that those who are justified by faith have a certainty of their salvation because justification by faith is finished and permanent and will assuredly result in our eternal blessedness. And so he says in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And this is Paul's argument. If you've, if you've already accepted and agreed with the truth of the argument that he justified us by his blood, which by the word is a word symbol for his death, it's theological shorthand for his sacrificial death, it isn't as if it's the literal blood that saved us. We would still be saved by his death even if he hadn't bled. If you've already accepted the argument that he died for us when we were still sinners and ungodly and enemies who were worthy of the wrath of God, then there is even better evidence that he will save us now that we are righteous by virtue of Christ's death. which is actually proof that we really were justified. It actually did happen. If while we were sinners we were reconciled, where God gave up his anger and wrath toward us, and we were brought back into the favor of God by the death of his son, and if we were enemies when he died and reconciled us, much more now that we have been reconciled, and he lives, shall we be saved. Simply by the fact that he lived and we share in that. Now it's very possible that his statement, we shall be saved by his life, may be a reference to his resurrected life. Where it says not only in Romans, but also in Hebrews, that Christ ever intercedes for us. Now that he is resurrected in his resurrected life, he is before God always interceding for us on our behalf, no matter what the devil may be trying to convince us of. This could also be a reference looking back to what Paul said in Romans 4.25 at the end of the chapter 4 before he went into chapter 5, where he said, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And so his conclusion is that the reconciled man, therefore, should not only be confident that we will escape God's wrath, but he should have triumphant confidence, having a triumphant manner and frame of mind when he looks at the cross. He should have a joyful hope because of the truth that God has done a wonderful work to reconcile us to himself. Paul uses the word for boasting, which the ESV translates, we also rejoice, in verse 11. Your, your confidence in God is, is a boasting confidence. It's glorying in the truth of the knowledge of God and the intimacy that he now has with you and the favor you have with him. 
glorying in the fact that he has completely turned away his wrath for anyone who is in Christ. He has removed his hostility. He has delivered you from the condemnation of the law. He has freed you from the guilt and power of sin. And he has necessarily accomplished these for all those who are in Christ Jesus because he loves you. I know I've said some challenging things to get you to think this morning. I hope you leave those in your heart, in your mind, and begin to think about them more deeply than we've had a chance to explore them this morning. Let me pray for us, okay? Father, we thank you for your mercy and the hope that you give us of the truth that you have turned away your wrath from sinful men in Christ. Father, help us be reminded of the truth this week, that it is forever and always about Jesus. The work that he has done in union with your will. Father, we just pray a real blessing on our thoughts and our lives as we contemplate these great truths this morning. Father, help us to sing the songs we sing now, lifting up your name and giving you praise for all the work you've done on our behalf. Amen.